Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Fifth grader Amy Mahalovic went to Bay Village Middle School on Friday wearing green pants, a lavender and green sweatshirt, and carrying a denim and red backpack. Police found Amy's bike locked up at school, but they haven't found Amy. Well, we're doing this to show Amy that we're all hoping for and hoping that she gets returned home safely. And I know we're all sort of scared, you know, and that something like this could really happen in our community. This quiet, upscale community is totally unaccustomed to this type of trauma. The Mahalovic abduction is on the minds and lips of everyone in town. And authorities fear that with each day that passes, lessens the likelihood of her safe return. Amy's abductor has been described as a white male, 35 to 45 years old, approximately 5'8", and wearing glasses. I, in fact, would like to ask anybody in the Cleveland area to light a white candle for Amy each day. Um, I think it will help light her way home. If there are candles burning all over, she's got to come back. She's got to come back. It was anything but business as usual today at Bay Village Middle School. Shortly after leaving here last Friday, 10-year-old Amy Mahalovic was abducted. Whoever is responsible is out there. We know that they have a great interest in what's being covered in the media, and uh, we certainly don't want to do anything to tip them off as to uh, the course of direction of our investigation. A number of law enforcement officials, including the FBI, were here for tonight's memorial service. In addition to paying their respects, there was also the gruesome outside possibility that Amy's killer might be among those who came to pay their respects. Bay Village police and the FBI aren't thumbing their nose at any clues, including the remotest of possible leads. Right now, time is the enemy, as the abductor's trail grows colder by the day. There's uh, frustration because the uh, murder hasn't been found. There's a lot of anger over that, too. Amy's posters up all over town will eventually come down. So will the ribbons tied up for Amy that are now worn and torn. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Who Killed? My name is Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to take a look back at my last interview with Chief Mark Spetzel of the Bay Village Police Department. And now he was the officer that spoke with Amy Mahalovic's class on the day that she was abducted. And then he eventually became the chief of police. Now, since then, he has retired. And this was probably one of the last interviews he gave about the case. And it is interesting to hear his perspective 30 years on uh, investigating this case. And it's always intriguing to hear from an actual officer who was boots on the ground and involved with the day-to-day operations when it came to investigating this unfortunate murder. So again, this is an interview that I conducted with Chief Mark Spetzel when he was still the chief of police at Bay Village, and he again has since retired, and in this episode we do talk about what his possible future employment situation may be so hopefully hopefully things will uh work out and he will be eventually back on the case but uh that is yet to be seen so uh until then enjoy this interview with chief of police mark spetzel 
of the city of Bay Village. Well, I, I've, I got a, I've got an extensive collection. So I've been with the department almost 34 years. So I was here and a young, relatively young officer at the time that this uh, crime occurred. And uh, as a patrol officer on October 27, 1989, I had actually uh, spoken to a class at the middle school and uh, later learned that uh, Amy Mahalik was in that class the same day that she was later abducted. So my connection goes back to the very beginning. And then um, at some point after, um, you know, we're just going to fast forward here, uh, I became a detective lieutenant, was put in charge of the detective bureau, and then it became case fall, fell under my purview. And so for the next 15 years or so, I was the main investigator along with uh, past investigators in the FBI on the case. So, and now uh, as police chief, I oversee all that. And um, as, as you and I have discussed in the past, a little frustrating because you can't work the case like you'd like to now as a police chief because you have other responsibilities. So I've been there since day one, basically. Yeah, literally. Literally, yeah. Literally since day one. Yep. Uh, it was from 1999 um, through 2013, basically. And what I would, well, of course, you had other cases. So we had the Mahalovic case always uh, out there, obviously, has not been resolved yet. So you have all your daily other activities, other crimes, uh, whether they be, you know, burglaries or rapes. And we've had a couple homicides during that time. So all that goes on. But in the background, you always have the Mahalovic case. And it's a case that comes up um, uh, often daily, depending on what you're doing with the case. Uh, and if not daily, weekly. Um, so there's always something happening with the Mahalovic case during the, the, that time period. There were time periods during the investigation where we would um, do a major focus on, on some aspect of the case, whether it's revisiting the facts, whether it's, you know, we talked about DNA in the past, or whether it's... Uh, looking at a certain aspect of, of something and, and really drill down on it. And during those times, we'd spend days just doing that, doing nothing but the Mahalovic case for the whole day. And that's not only me, but that's the other detectives, that's uh, prior detectives, that's the FBI, and it's, you know, it's labs, it's everybody assisting. So the case has always been um, moving forward, uh, and it's sometimes heavily and other times just maybe weekly following up on a tip that comes in. More glacier-paced. Yeah. Now, did you guys have any leads down in Ashland County area? I mean, did, were they, as far as the authorities go, were they, did they work with you guys at all as far as, you know, tips when the, when the body was found? And So we established a secondary kind of command post down there with the FBI and Ashland County Sheriff's Department. So we actually separated leads. So uh, leads were always coming in up here in northeast Ohio, when the body was found down in Ashland, we set, we set up the secondary command post, and leads started coming into that. And there were a lot of leads that came into that, obviously, because that's where the body was found. Obviously, they were all still coordinated up here with our, our organization, but a lot of leads that came in down there were followed up by agents, sheriff's deputies, FBI agents who were working down there, as well as we had um, at least one officer from our department and local FBI working in assistance with that. So... It was always a coordinated effort uh, to do that. So you guys always had work together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and just regardless of what organization, we, we've worked with many, many other law enforcement agencies on this case because they'll, they'll provide us information or maybe we need their assistance with something. So. Now, I know that we've talked about DNA in the past, and we haven't gotten, you know, you're not, obviously not going to get into specifics right. about what you have. 
But when was it that you realized that you had it? And now, in 1989, were you conscientious of that at that time? Because it hadn't been used in trial yet. DNA was was certainly in its infancy back in 89. It was nowhere near what it is today. But even back then, you know, everybody knew that blood evidence was important, you know, even then. Um, So you have a a body that is recovered in a field that's um, decomposed. Um, You you understand that a lot of the forensic evidence has probably been um, deteriorated, uh, lost, you know, just from the period of time, the weather conditions and everything else. So, but you treat that body scene, recovery scene, as a crime scene and you try to collect everything you can. So they did that. They did their due diligence there as far as collecting any evidence. Just like as we sit here today, we have no idea what the technology is going to be 15 years from now. Right. So if we respond to a, a homicide now, there are things that we probably will do and 15 years from now, we'll look back and say, well, we should have maybe done that. Well, we didn't know. We don't know what that technology is going to be. But we all know that the sensitivity of DNA is, is, is only going to improve. You know, we have touch DNA now where certain cells just from person walking into a room and touching something now leaves, leaves DNA. So you have to, in your mind, you have to say to yourself, we have to protect this scene to the best of our ability because we don't know what that's going to be. And I believe they did that back in 1989. Yeah, I mean, with the high-profile case that it was, I would think that they kind of dotted their I's and crossed their T's in many different ways. Right. Uh, now, as far as when they went down to the scene the day that she was found, do you know how many officers and people were down in that area collecting evidence? And I don't, I don't know the exact numbers. I will tell you that um, by prior arrangement, if, if it was determined her body was ever recovered, that the Cuyahoga County Medical's officers, coroner's office at that time would do the autopsy. So that was predetermined. So when it was determined it was her body, um, her body was transported to the Cuyahoga County uh, coroner's office. Uh, the Ashland County Sheriff's Office was responsible for maintaining the, the crime scene down there, and they did a really nice job of that. It, it was maintained, gosh, I can't give you an exact, at least a half-mile radius around where her body was found. Um, they... they because it was their jurisdiction, they had primary jurisdiction there, but obviously they knew it was our crime. So we assisted, the FBI assisted, the Ashland County uh, Coroner's Office, the County Coroner's Office, the Ashland County Sheriff's Department. All of them were involved in that search of the scene, recovery of the body, and, and subsequent investigation of that, that area. And, and that's when you found the curtain and the blanket that came out in 2016. Right, because we collected virtually everything around that crime scene. And those were found, you know, down the road as the, as, the, as the wind blows and as the water flows, it was found down the road. So those were collected at that time, along with other pieces that probably have no relevancy, but you don't know. Again, we look back and we say, well, I wish we would have done that. But they collected everything that didn't, didn't naturally grow there. They collected it. Yeah, you said how many bags or boxes? There, there were hundreds of items just collected from that area. Uh, I, I do not off the top of my head. If I'm looking at it, I think it's probably about three and a half feet by about five feet. Okay. Yeah, and it's a homemade blank or it's a homemade curtain made out of what looks to be like a bedspread. Yeah. Uh, very unusual. It's not something you'd buy in a store. It was handmade. Oh yeah. Somebody made this curtain, and I'm sure it has a match somewhere or had a match somewhere, which is why we put it out publicly. You know, it's such a unique item that hopefully somebody would recognize it. Now, we've not had that 
exact match. You know, it's never come across our plate yet, but we're still hoping for that. Now, as far as the blanket goes, same connection though with the as far as the dog hairs. The, no, just on the curtain itself. The blanket didn't have any connection, but it was found no. in the same relative okay. area. No, just other than the same exact area. And you, yeah, and you think about the fact that you know these were these could have been lying there for we don't know how long, months and months, right? Exposed to the elements. Well, DNA is sensitive. It it, it is ir- easily um, destroyed. So anything out in the elements has potential for being destroyed. So one of the things we look for is um, uh, is there a potential down the road with some new technology where we're not identifying DNA on this item currently, but in the future will it be such a sensitive test that we can identify something we couldn't identify today. So that's why you keep all that stuff. That's why you reanalyze it, which is what we've been doing over the years. Every time there's a new new breakthrough, we're looking for another avenue to pursue as far as forensics and DNA. The first time that we talked, I think that cases were starting i think the golden state killer had just been solved but it did feel like cases were being solved on the regular and i felt like amy's case might be one of those cases I'm, you know after a year of that are you are we still waiting for the technology well, Th- that still... technology isn't what's going to solve this the case. technology of today isn't what's probably going to solve it for us we're going to okay. we're still looking for the technology of tomorrow but we know it's coming we know that they're advancing rapidly and the other thing is you got to be careful you don't destroy all your evidence, you know, pin all your hopes on one possible technology. Because right. if you get rid of all your evidence, then what if you have, you know? Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. so you got to be really careful on picking the right time, being very judicious in the use of your, of your technology because you want to, when you do it, you want to make sure it's right. So currently the familial genealogy that's been used to solve these other cases isn't something that could be used currently. Well, not not cur- in the future, possibly. Right. But where, where we stand now, no. Okay. You know, it's a very complicated. I don't want to get into all the details of it, but because you know, it's like when techno, you know, when when you have this coded database, right? You got all these convicted uh, criminals with their DNA in a database. You would think, well, you have a crime scene. You just pull off DNA that is unknown to the victim, and you plug it in the database. You solve the crime. Well, it's not always that simple, especially when you have a body that was lying in a field for an extended period of time, exposed to the elements, and a lot of the potential DNA probably got destroyed, uh, you know, or contaminated, or whatever the case may be. So that complicates things. If you have a crime scene that happened yesterday, that's a whole different story. Um, and then again, over time, even even if you collect it properly, we're talking 30 years that DNA has been sitting around, and even that deteriorates in the best of conditions. So, again, you, you got to be really careful. So when the body was found, was it the Cuyahoga County coroner that actually removed the body then, or was it Ashland County? Ashland County, removed, Ashland County coroner's office removed the body. It was transported up by private ambulance up to Cuyahoga County. Always wondered, just yeah. because I know that Emory, I mean, the one autopsy report or coroner's report that I've seen, as far as the cause of death goes, I mean, it looked like blunt force trauma and, uh, you know, a couple stab wounds to the neck, and then she bled out. I mean, it, I mean, is that what basically... The blunt force trauma, they, they never really determined if that was fatal or not. Probably not. Okay. But, um, and, and, you know, we don't know if it was, if the blunt force trauma was before she was stabbed, um, after she was stabbed. In other words, you could be stabbed and fall to the ground and hit your head. And if it's at the same time and your heart's still beating, you can't necessarily tell if that bruise or that, that trauma was caused by 
before or after that event. So it's very, very close, paramorum, perimortem. So um, that's really not been determined. Definitely the stab wounds were, were the fatal part of that crime. And to create like a stab wound that would, I mean, basically they must have cut the carotid artery or, and it doesn't take a big knife to do that. Uh, so it was a pretty devastating, there were a couple stab wounds to the neck and they were pretty devastating injuries. And 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Well, again, deterioration, uh, decomposition, you know, but uh, they were, it wouldn't have taken a large knife. We don't think it was a, a large, large knife or anything like that. It wouldn't have taken much to do the damage that, that occurred. You can tell, I think the, the wounds indicate it was a personal crime. Uh, it indicates, well, the crime itself, if we go back to the abduction and things like that, the individual who did this was very calculating and planning, uh, you know, they, 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 Really planned the event out. They groomed her. Do you think that her, you know, able to get her there, met, like more of a how do I put this? But was I think it what imp- happens in like these impulsive? cases is they have a, I mean, does, a different like the way that vision it, of what a relationship's going to be like, like with a child than you and I would ever perceive it to be, and those never work out, of course. And and so we believe it was a sexually motivated crime, the kidnapping and the abduction and the eventual murder. So something happened. Didn't go the way that he expected, and he had to kill her. And, you know, that's what we believe happened. Uh, and, and so there's a personal aspect to that, that type of crime. And that is a perfect segue to introduce this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Having dealt with anxiety and depression for most of my life, I know a thing or two about the importance of mental health. So today I'm pleased to tell you about a great company. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? or is preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. And now you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. With over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, BetterHelp is there for you. If you're not happy with any of your counselors for any reason at any time, you can get a new one for no additional charge. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone. Whether you're suffering from depression, anger, stress, anxiety, LGBT matters, or self-esteem issues, they have a licensed professional counselor for you. And everything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed Amy Mahalovic listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com WHO. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's BetterHelp.com WHO.
that's interesting as far as, as far as the personal aspect of it goes, because if he just, I mean, he groomed her, but if you know, if, if he didn't know her, yeah, he I, obviously we know there was a caller calls made, yeah, and uh, that process of grooming occurred, and we don't know over how many calls, we know at least one, probably more, but this is an individual that is that excels at grooming kids, because um, you think about Amy who. You know, had a, a, a fairly protective mother. They had a password. If anybody was going to pick her up, uh, you know, um, she had to call home every day after she got home. These are indicators that they knew that there's dangers out in the world. And they're doing what they can to protect their daughter. Yet still, Amy, despite that, meets a stranger. We don't know what it was in her mind, but for us it was a stranger, and goes shopping. And so that's, a, that's quite a change from her normal behavior. So he had to have made her feel very comfortable to get in that car and leave with him. Yeah, it really leaves a lot of question into how he could have gotten that trust so right. quickly. And, it, and that's probably through grooming that he has had prior practice doing, which indicates he probably has other attempts or he has other crimes that he's committed where he's groomed young children. Um, so that's why we always look at past crimes you know, to see if there's anything or, or crimes that occurred after the fact that match up with ours, uh, even re- remotely. This is probably an individual that started making phone calls. They could have been sexually motivated phone calls. It could have been voyeurism. There's all kinds of precursor criminal behavior that he could have been involved in. So these things are always looked at. When we get a tip or lead, we're always looking and doing background work to see what other activities they may have been involved with. Yeah, that's one of the cases, one of the MOs that I've, like, get to see at least repeated since then. I mean, I, I know technology at that time was changing pretty rapidly as far as the phone went. And, you know, obviously things could move online and that's a whole other ball of wax. I did come across a story in Toronto, though, that happened three years prior to Amy's, which was the uh, Allison Perrot case. Okay. And she was called at home, groomed, told that... He was going to conduct a, he was a reporter or a photographer and wanted to take her picture for the upcoming track event. But she was 11 and, you know, same exact end result. Yeah, and that's the type of behavior that these individuals during that time frame would have exhibited. And as you said, today, that'd probably be the Internet. They'd be using the Internet to contact and make those connections. And before the telephone and all that, it was, it was playgrounds, you know. And so as things evolve, their methods evolve. And, you know, there's a very good possibility that this individual who, who groomed Amy and made the phone call has moved, moved on to the Internet or something like that. That's very possible. You started in, what, 80... 85. 85. Okay, so that was like the heart of Stranger Danger. Mm-hmm. And where did the whole Stranger Danger yeah, I don't, and all that stuff... I don't know what the case or cases were that did that. I, I really have never looked at that, but certainly... You know, anybody who's ever been a parent, your number one responsibility is to keep your kids safe, right? You know, uh, have them grow up to be to be safe. And um, I think when you start hearing about these cases, of course, today's media, you hear about everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, true or not, you hear about everything that goes on out there, and it makes you even more aware. So I think that was just beginning back in that time frame. Just more communication between... Just more avenues of communication and more stories being out there. You know, crime has always occurred. Right. It's always been around. It's just how it's presented to the public and how they find out about it has changed dramatically with 
social media and the instantaneous news and everything else. I definitely feel like, you know, with the coverage, I mean, just in the 80s, being a kid that grew up in the 80s, I mean, it was like stranger danger was every day. It was, you know, this, that, and the other. And, I mean, I know that there were cases like, you know, Adam Walsh, um, and then... And then you, had, you guys actually had John Walsh come up and do yeah, he did a, a, a segment on yeah. America's Most Wanted. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those... I mean, it has to drive you nuts. I mean, not to say what everybody is thinking, but, you know, to sit here 30 years later... So there's a level of frustration because we feel like we've done everything that we could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, devel- we We devoted resources from literally the minute she walked in the door and said her child was missing an extraordinary amount of resources were developed so it's not like you you look back and say man we just didn't do a very good job on this we didn't do this we didn't do that we did things that were cutting edge at the time let alone everything that you would normally expect and we devoted a a ton of resources to it we're a small department 24 officers Mm -hmm. but the fact is we had the the assistance of the state and the federal government and every surrounding law enforcement agency helping us so we had this force multiplier. So it really wasn't just because we were small, we, didn't, we didn't, couldn't do it. We had everybody assisting. So we had the resources. We had the, the manpower, um, and, and we utilized all of that. So the frustration comes in is you did everything you possibly can, yet it's still not resolved. That's where the frustration is. Yeah, and one of, my, one of the podcasts <clears throat> excuse me, that inspired me to, to do a story about Amy was was in the dark, and they covered the Jacob Wetterling case, and you know that happened like four days, five days prior to Amy's, and it was a young boy riding his bike, and and that was a case where the department dropped the ball, and like you could t- you can they actually interviewed the the guy and looked in his car and moved on, and you know it was one of those things that like it came up, and it's not to say that like if Amy's killer is eventually caught that his name won't be found in the database oh it it could very well because we have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of names you know so it's very possible that that could be the case sure yeah and so that was a pure you know a case of they didn't do it right so it does have to be agonizingly frustrating for you to be just knowing that you dotted your I's and crossed your T's and had the FBI here literally the next day. And that is, that is, it's not only frustrating for current investigators, but past investigators who poured their heart and soul into solving this and, you know, went on and, and had to leave their service without doing that. And it's, it, it, and there's been a few of those, and, and certainly that affects them as well. Uh, but there are people that are, will always come back, and I, I'm in contact with a lot of them. They'll always come back and help if we said, hey, you know, you worked on a part of this, and um, you know it, it's come back up. Do you mind coming in? Well, they'd be here in a second. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, and that's a good segue into where things stand with Torsney, and you know, especially just Torsney and his right. involvement. So, so Phil Torsney's been working on it. He was he was on the case back in eighty eighty nine. Uh, he worked an aspect of the case, and of course, his his job was not the aim of all of the case back then. But he worked on a good part of it. Continued to work on it throughout his career, even up through retirement. Um, and he's come back and helped us, and, and uh, he's been a tremendous asset. He's a, he's a dog and investigator, great guy. Uh, he's some, definitely somebody you want on your team. So we've had the ability to, to utilize his expertise and knowledge and 
um, he's been a great asset for us. And, and um, he'll continue to work. He'll, he'll continue to do what he can to help us. So when a there's case a, transfers from one agent to the, case, to the next, there has been do they get years. like a refresher uh, that on the case? Has changed and do they like come in and talk to you and say, hey, this is, I'm the so new guy? we have a point of contact at the Cleveland office. Now, as far as the grant money goes? Grant money has run out. Um, you know, the city has helped pay for some of his services as well. And, and we'll try to continue to do what we can. But, you know, there's no unlimited pot of money anywhere for anything. So we do what we can. We certainly see him quite a bit and talk with him. Yeah, I was wondering what that kind of relationship was. It's a good relationship, and it's often it's often agents we knew before. Okay. Uh, but as they get promoted or move on or get transferred, whatever it is, somebody new is assigned, and often when that new person is assigned, it's somebody we know, you know, in the Bay Village Police Department because we we know the agents, um, a lot of them anyway, and so we're already familiar with them, and generally they're all familiar with the case too because they have. If they get a tip that we need their assistance, they, it's not just one person that helps. It's whoever in the office can help. Right. So the case is well known in the Cleveland office okay. uh, amongst the, 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 the team there. And so um, everybody's familiar with it. It's just that there is one person assigned as the point person to coordinate the activities and help with the investigation. Thank you so much to Chief Mark Spetzel and the Bay Village Police Department for allowing me to interview them about the Amy Mahalovic case. And again, this is unsolved murder of a 10-year-old girl that is currently now 31 years old. And it is about that time that somebody steps forward and confesses or turns somebody in. But please, if you are familiar with anybody involved in this case, please contact the authorities at the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234, or you can contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And again, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, and if you guys are interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, and that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show with the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. There will also be a link in the show notes for you guys. And I am serious when I tell you that every contribution, big or small, really does help keep these slow burn podcasts on the air. And if you want to leave a review, that helps as well. So wherever you listen to your favorite shows, those five stars help keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you so much again for listening. And until next week, be healthy and, of course, stay safe.
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. It's criminal.